Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you and be able to open up God's Word together and worship and sing. And uh, like I said in the welcome, it's that time of year where we get to break out the, the Christmas hymns and, uh, and get to sing them without shame uh, and, uh, and enjoy uh, the rich hymns of the faith that we only get to sing in uh, a few weeks out of the year. And to be honest with you, I wish we could sing them more. Um, I wish that we could sing them more often on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm not making a plea, Chris. I'm just saying in general, um, because um, they, they bring with them a certain depth and grandeur, don't they, that many other hymns don't always do. And in particular, what we've been singing this morning is the great mystery of the faith, namely the incarnation of the divine Son. We're, we're singing high theology about who Jesus is, that he is the word made flesh. And so in this way, as we sing these Christmas songs, they, they, they summon us to, to think lofty thoughts of Christ, and they draw our hearts near to the heartbeat of heaven. And one of my favorite hymns this time of year, we didn't sing it this morning, but maybe I'm sure we will one of these Sundays, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it declares, what, the glory of the newborn king. And there's a particular verse, that we already have it up here on the screen, that is a little bit peculiar. Um, we, we read here, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. And then I've underlined, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That second line, that stanza, has, has confused people throughout the years. It still confuses 
people because we read, Hail the Son of Righteousness, and you may find, particularly in modern hymns, or at least renditions of it, that, that son, S-U-N, is changed to S-O-N, son. And there's good intentions, no doubt, I'm sure, because they're trying to make it clear we're talking about the Son of God. In fact, you might find it interesting to know, Charles Wesley penned this hymn, and it's been revised, and actually the, the lyrics that we typically sing are the ones that have been revised by George Whitfield, the great preacher and revivalist of the 19th century. And it was interesting that George Whitfield, in his rendition of the hymn, changes it from S-U-N to S-O-N. And so you may find, depending on what hymn book you have, it says S-U-N or S-O-N, and there seems to be this confusion. In fact, when I submitted the title of my sermon this week, Jeremy's like, is this supposed to be S-U-N or S-O-N? And I said, that's perfect, because I'm going to try to explain it uh, in my introduction. And I think part of the reason the confusion is, is that, that we don't know what Charles Wesley's referring to. But if we were to look at Malachi chapter 4, I'm not encouraging you right now to go there, but it's one book back into the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, anticipates the great day of the Lord when the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Those, those lines are straight from Malachi chapter 4. And so we learn here from this hymn that we are a people who are to fear, hail, uphold his name, which is the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. And here in our passage this morning, this transfiguration passage that Peter deems as the holy mountain upon which he and James and John stood upon, this passage shines for us the glory of Christ like the rays of the sun so that our minds may be illumined and our hearts may be warmed to hail him as our great God, our great teacher, our great mediator, and our great redeemer. And that's where we're going to begin as we look in these opening verses of Matthew chapter 17, that, that Jesus is our great God. And Matthew here soaks this passage. He, he saturates it, if you will, with majesty. And it recalls, actually, the glory that descended upon the, the great Mount Sinai back in the Exodus, if you think about Exodus 24 and Exodus 34. In fact, much of what is written here um, echoes or alludes or harks back to uh, those glorious moments when Moses would be on the great mountain where he would commune with God and he would enter that great cloud of God's presence and God's glory would descend upon it and it would shake and the, the earth would, uh, would grumble or, or uh, move and shake and quake and, and lightning would flash so much so that Israel would be fearful of even touching the mountain lest they would die. You may recall, if you're familiar with that passage, the initial coming up and ascending that mountain, God calls Moses and he tells him to bring three of his companions, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And they go up on that mountain. And it's on that mountain that the, the cloud of God's presence descends and, and encompasses it. And we read that it was on the, the seventh day, a cloud rested for six days, and then on the seventh day, a voice comes out of that cloud and calls Moses alone to enter in and to experience the presence of God. 
Well, here in our passage, Matthew tells us that Jesus, too, goes up a mountain. Jesus also takes with him three of his companions, Peter, James, and John. And we notice that it was after six days that he takes them up there. And they enter the cloud of God's presence, which overshadows them. However, there is a significant difference in what occurred on that day at Mount Sinai and what is now occurring on this unnamed mountain. Peter calls it that holy mountain. There's a difference here, and this difference communicates that there's a greater glory that is being displayed, a greater glory that has come. See, when Moses would meet with God, you may recall that when he came down that mountain, his face shone like the sun. And Israel was so frightened by him that they asked him to put a veil over his face, to veil and hide the glory of God from them. Well, here we read that Jesus' face shines like the sun, but there's no veil that can hide this glory. His, his clothes also radiate bright as white. They, they magnify the glory of Christ. See, here in this passage, Jesus is not just another Moses going to ascend the mountain. He's not just a servant of the Lord. He's not just going to reflect the glory of God for us to see. No, he is the radiance of the glory of God because he is the Lord. See, Jesus comes and ascends the mountain not to behold the glory of God, but to reveal the glory of God to Peter, James, and John. There's a greater event occurring here. And in fact, this is what Jesus talks about in, in just the previous chapter in verses six, verse 27 of chapter 16. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Well, now we're seeing this glory. This scene is often called the transfiguration. And what's going on here is that Jesus is giving a foretaste of that glory he shares with the Father. Now, last Sunday, we, we concluded chapter 16, and, and I didn't touch on this verse, but it's a peculiar one. What does Jesus mean in verse 28 when he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It seems that Jesus is talking about his second coming. That's how I take him. He's going to come with the glory of his Father and his angels, and he's going to repay each one according to their deeds. He's going to execute judgment, and then he says to his disciples, some of you are going to see this glory. And it's caused people, even skeptics, to, to wonder, well, maybe Jesus was mistaken, Matthew was mistaken, there's some sort of error here, Jesus had a lot loftier idea of who he was, uh, Matthew wrote this thinking that they were going to live the whole time until Jesus returns, but what we learn here is that actually the scriptures are not true. That's a simplistic way of looking at it. I think the, the natural way to see this is that, that he talks about some of them are going to see this glory that he comes with when he comes in his kingdom. And that's what we have here in chapter 17. Some who are standing there are Peter, James, and John. And they are now beholding the glory that he will share and he will have when he comes on his second coming. Here in this passage, in this scene, we behold both Christ in his pre-incarnate glory, that is the glory that he shared with the Father before he came to earth, before he became flesh, 
But we also see here his future glory when he will come again. And what we see here is that he is truly God and truly man. We're seeing the glorified. Christ is, hark there, old angel said, he's veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God, brothers and sisters, has become like one of us so that we might become like him. God has sought us out. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we see here one of the great truths, the things that we are going to be singing all through this Advent season. When God comes, he comes to us. He doesn't just come near. He doesn't just come halfway. No, he became one of us. And here we see that though he is a man, he is also the divine son of man. The shining of his face, the brightness of his clothes, declares that he shares the same divine glory as the Father. As we will soon see, he's distinct from the Father. He's not the same as the Father. The Father is going to say, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. There's two persons. But yet, Jesus, as the second member of the triune God, shares the same glory because he is God. And yet we see at the same time he has a human body. He's not just divine, clothed in human flesh. No, he's the glorified son of man. Brothers and sisters, what we see here and what we've been singing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Some, some think that, that that text is only talking about the second coming. Actually, no, this is talking about here, what we're seeing here in this transfiguration. Joy to the Lord. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And what we see here is a taste, is a sneak peek. It is a, is a looking behind the veil, if you will, to, to see him as he truly is. But it's also to cultivate within your heart a desire, a longing, a passion a heart to see him in all his glory, to anticipate his coming. Brothers and sisters, are you cultivating a longing to behold his face and meet your great God? John, who is on this mountain, he's one of the three, he writes in his letter, I think we have it up here on the screen, in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, We are God's children now. Do you know that? You're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What what is John telling us? John has seen the majestic glory. He has seen him on this holy mountain. And he is saying, hey, brothers and sisters, you are children of God. And what you are is yet not appear. It's not yet evident. But when he comes in glory and he shines like the sun and his clothes are bright as white, guess what? You too will be glorified with him. You are going to share in that same glory if you hope in him. If you share in that same hope. And how do we build our hope in Christ? Well, we do what Matthew has recorded for us, and we listen to Jesus. We hail him as our great 
teacher. If you return there in Matthew chapter 17, look in verse 4 and 5. And what Matthew begins to reveal to us uh, is that Moses and Elijah appear. And Peter doesn't know what to do with them. In fact, you might be wondering, why does Moses and Elijah appear? What, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is a superior teacher to them. We're seeing that he is far greater than Moses and Elijah. Now, what's significant about Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses wrote the law, right? Moses went upon the mountain of God, and he brought down the revelation of God to Israel. He is seen as the great prophet. He is seen as the great teacher of Israel. And Elijah, who's Elijah? He's one of the greatest prophets who is able to shut up the heavens. He's able to call fire down. He's seen to be one of the greatest of all the prophets, and he represents the prophets. And all their writings were calling Israel to go back to God, to turn their hearts from serving idols to serve the true and living God. And as we've grown to see, Peter, he doesn't understand the significance of the moment. Look in verse 4. Peter said to the Lord, Lord, is it good that we're here? Or it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark's account in Mark chapter 9 says that Peter said this out of fear. Seems like Peter, some of you are like this, you can't stand silence. There's something going on, you've got to speak into the situation because it brings you great anxiety. That seems to be Peter's situation. Uh, hey, this is too quiet. I'm going to start talking and, uh, and, and I'm going to you know, say what I think. And Peter is saying, hey, this is good that we're here, right, Jesus? Hey, we'll make you tents and we can just stand here and bask in your glory forever. It's as if, hey, forget all those people down on the mountain. I've got all I need. We've got you guys here. <laughs> We've brought back the Hall of Fame. We got Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Man, you can't, you can't beat this. And this is rather comical, kind of, uh, if you, if you kind of can sense the moment of what's going on, because you see in verse 5, it says, while he was still speaking, it's as if God interrupts him. <laughs> Peter's talking, and then this cloud just looms over, and then all of a sudden, Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> In other words, Peter, stop talking. This isn't time to talk. I am showing you something about who my son is, and you're babbling. You're babbling. Peter thinks he should make room for all three. And he seeks to put them actually on equal footing. Hey, hey, Jesus, I got a tent for each of you. You three. But God the Father says, no, listen to my son. He points out Christ. What's going on here? Jesus is presented as the great prophet and teacher. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, there is going to come a prophet after me. And whom the Lord is going to put his words inside his mouth. And when he speaks, you must listen to him or you die. 
And what we see here is that Jesus is that great prophet, that one who is to come. But what was not clear in the Old Testament was that though this prophet would be like Moses, he would be greater than Moses. It wasn't clear. What sense is he going to be greater than Moses? What we see here in Jesus, not only do the words of God reside in him, but the fullness of deity dwells in him. He's not, he is like Moses, and he's not like Moses. He's God in the flesh. And so what we're seeing here is actually a visual representation of something that Jesus has already said. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. You might think Moses and Elijah. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What what, what is Jesus saying? What, What are we seeing here in the transfiguration of Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus And this cloud coming over and overshadowing them all and pointing and highlighting like a spotlight. Listen to Jesus. Almost in a sense, you don't have to listen to Moses and Elijah anymore. Listen to Jesus. What is he talking about? Well, he's not abolishing them. He's fulfilling them. He's fulfilling them. Well, how does that work? Jesus is the one in whom all the Old Testament as we know it. He's the one in whom all the Old Testament was speaking of and pointing to. See, unlike the law and the prophets, Jesus' words not only reveal the righteousness of God, but Jesus' words produce it in you. Law and the prophets, they could only highlight the righteousness of God and show us our utter failure, but Jesus not only preaches the righteousness of God, but gives it to us, where the law and the prophets could not do that. Jesus, as the great teacher, not only has authority, but he has the power to give us new hearts so that we may walk in the righteousness of God. He who hears him, guess what? He he transforms your heart. Where the law could not transform your heart, it could only condemn you. Moses brought the word of God on stone tablets, but guess what? Jesus comes and brings the word and writes it on your heart. That's what the prophets look forward to. A day in which you would be circumcised in heart. Elijah was able to rain down judgment upon the prophets of Baal, wasn't he? But guess what he couldn't do? He couldn't turn Israel from their idolatry. They remained in their idolatry. Yet Jesus, by his word, he opens the eyes of the blind. He gives ears to hear. He softens the heart so that we may love him and see him and behold him as our true and living God. See, what this text is bidding us to do, summoning us to do, is to listen to Jesus and to learn from him how he fulfills the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, so that we may inherit the promises of God's kingdom. That's what all of of Matthew is really about. When Jesus says, you have heard what has been said, but I say to you, he's giving the right understanding of the law. He's bringing it to bear on our hearts. See, as Christians, guess what? You and I can read the Old Testament in a more complete understanding, and a fulfilled understanding, than any of the Jews prior to us. 
prior to Christ. They could not see it. These things were, as the writer of Hebrews says, types and shadows of the things that were to come. But guess what? Jesus is like the, the puzzle box, okay? You see him, oh, I know how to fit the puzzle together, right? I can see the box, and now I can put the pieces in the right place. In, in a similar way, that's how we read the Old Testament. Now, having known the end, knowing what the picture looks like, when we read Genesis through Malachi, guess what? We can't help but read Jesus, right? We begin reading in, in things that would have just scratched your head if you didn't have the cover of the puzzle box. Oh, that's clearly Jesus. He has done that. He is the far greater teacher. And so we must listen to him to fully understand Moses and Elijah. He's far superior. Therefore, as Peter says, as Pastor Nathan read, you will do well to pay attention to the prophetic word because by it you will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you may not realize this, but when Paul and Peter and John are ministering in, the, in Acts, guess what? They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't have Romans yet. They don't have all these books. Guess what they were preaching Christ from? The Old Testament. They were listening to Jesus. See, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, every day in the synagogue when Moses is read, guess what? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a veil that remains over their faces. They cannot understand it. In fact, that's true for every person who does not know Christ. You can't understand his word. But when you come to Christ and you listen to him and he regenerates your heart, he opens up to your mind, he, he unplugs your deaf ears, he loosens your tongue, guess what? You can see him. And in doing so, you also find him to be your great mediator. This is what we see here as we continue in our passage in verses 6 through 8. Upon hearing the voice of the majestic glory, Matthew tells us that Peter, James, and John, what do they do, verse 6? They fall down on their faces and were terrified. Just so you know, this is what everyone does when they encounter the presence of God. Everyone falls down in utter terror. And John will have this happen to him again in Revelation chapter 1. He, he, he beholds Christ in his glory again, and he says he falls down like a dead man. Paul is knocked to the ground and blinded by the light of the glory of Christ. So many people think that on that day that they stand before God, they're going to tell him, Whatever they want to tell him, no, you will fall down in terror. You will fear him. You will fall to your knees. In fact, this is what will occur on the great day of judgment. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. It's the last book of the Bible, if you don't know where that is. Revelation chapter 6, these great seal judgments. And I just want to look at the last one, which I... I take to lead us up to the last day, the great day of the Lord. And I want you to see what happens when the glory of Christ is revealed. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, when he, that's Jesus, opened the sixth seal, 
John says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is where I want you to focus. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, what did they do? Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and he leaves us with this question, who can stand? Who can stand in God's presence? You ever wondered who? How are you going to answer that question? Who can stand in God's presence? Who's going to be able to stand when the Son of Man comes with his angels and the glory of his Father and is going to repay each according to their deeds? Who can stand on that day? The answer is no one. No one's going to stand on that day. No one's going to stand boldly. No, everyone's going to hide. Everyone's going to fall to their faces unless you're in Christ. Unless you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Unless you have been clothed with the white robe of His righteousness. Unless you have been sealed by his spirit and you bear his name, you will not be able to stand on that day. But if you bear the name of Christ, if you've been clothed in his righteousness, if you share in the glory that he has because you have come to him in faith, guess what? You will be able to stand. You will be like Peter, James, and John in verse 7 where Jesus comes to them and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. I don't know how that day is going to be. But I imagine we're going to be startled. And perhaps we too will fall down to our faces. And I don't know exactly how this will be. I guess the loud trumpet and the sound. But we will hear his voice and we'll know he's calling out to us. And he will call us up to himself. And though, well, there may be a sense of terror and fear, it'll, our fears will be lifted. As our eyes will look up and we will see no one but Jesus alone. Right? We will see him. The three disciples, they, they hear verse 8, open up their eyes and notice they don't see anyone except Jesus only. Matthew's trying to help us see Moses, Elijah, whew, there's a sense in which that era is past. Jesus is here. They were pointing to him. He's here. And the point being, Jesus is our mediator, not Moses and Elijah, not anyone else. Paul understood this truth. He says, for there's only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And what did he do? He gave himself as a ransom for all. 
Jesus, brothers and sisters, is our righteousness. That glory that we see in this transfiguration, he is the glory of God, the righteousness of God that we must have to stand on that day. But he says, anyone who comes to me, anyone who identifies with me, anyone who places their trust in me, anyone who listens to me, guess what? I will give you this righteousness. I will clothe you with with a robe of righteousness. I will give you a new name. And you will be able to inherit a new heavens and a new earth, and you will be able to stand on the great day of wrath when I come. He's our mediator. So while that is a great and fearful day for the world, guess what? In Christ, he mediates on our behalf. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's a propitiation. He's the satisfaction for our sins. And and that's really where we get to in this last point. He is our great redeemer. As Jesus and the disciples descend this mountain, you see in verse 9, Jesus forbids them again not to tell anyone what they have seen or heard. You see that? He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He's already done this once in, in chapter 16, 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. Why is he doing that? Why wouldn't he want people to know his glory? Why wouldn't he want people to understand who he is? Because he has a mission to fulfill. And he knows the people would strive to make him king. He understands that not even the disciples themselves, as we're going to learn, fully understand how this glory is going to come about. And so he says, you guys need to wait until I'm raised from the dead. And that phrase begins to scratch their minds, scratch their heads. They're like, they're confused. What what does this mean? That he has to be raised from the dead? That means he has to die. He can't die. Look, we just saw this magnificent vision of who he is and the glory that is going to be revealed. And so they raise this question to Jesus. And they say to him, hey, Jesus, why do the scribes say that First, Elijah must come. Now, you might be saying, what does this have to do with anything? Why would they raise this question about Elijah? We're back to that son of righteousness passage in Malachi chapter 4. Because you keep going on, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the Lord says Elijah will come. Not only will he come, he will turn the hearts of the people back to God. And so it was understood that when Elijah comes, then the Lord will come and restore all things. That's what they're saying. Hey, when Elijah comes, I thought everything's going to be restored. And so here's the train of thought that I think they're going with. So if the restoration is to come, why does Jesus need to be raised? Why does does death have to come into the picture? If you look in Mark chapter 9, that's exactly why they raised this question. Because they didn't understand why He must suffer and die. Notice that Jesus affirms what the scribes say. Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. He will will make things right, if you will. But Jesus says, but here's what they don't understand. This is one of those things, everything's fulfilled in me. And they don't yet see it. And you need to listen to me. 
and trust me that I understand how these things are coming about. Because let me tell you, Elijah has already come. Huh? So something our, our Branhamite friends do not understand. They think Elijah's still to come. No, Jesus says he's already come. And he says, they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. What they didn't realize was that the spirit of Elijah had come in John the Baptist. That's a lot I know that I just don't have time to unpack, but just trust that's how it works, okay? And he comes in the role of Elijah, and he comes and he makes straight the paths of the Lord. He prepares the way of the Lord, who's coming the kingdom of heaven in his hand. Repent and turn back to the Lord. However, they didn't recognize him for who he was. You'll, you'll find later that they'll ask him, hey, was, uh, was uh, Jesus asked the, the Pharisees, hey, was, was, uh, was John the Baptist from heaven or was he not? And they, they don't want to answer because they don't think he speaks for God, but they know that everyone reveres him as a prophet. They, they don't recognize what's going on in, in John the Baptist. And, and he says, and, and as a result, guess what? He dies. He dies under Herod's reign. We've, we've seen that. He's beheaded. And he says, guess what? That's the, pay, that's the road that he has come to prepare, a road of suffering. And guess what? I'm on the same road. That's what he begins to tell them. And so just as they treated the Elijah who has already come, so they will treat the Son of Man. And, and it's interesting, the disciples get some understanding, but it's not the understanding that, that we might expect them to have. It says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. But they don't yet understand that Jesus has got to die. <laughs> they only get part of it. In fact, in fact as we continue to, from this point on, Jesus is just going to pound this fact about the cross and resurrection. But they don't understand it yet. They don't understand that this kingdom and restoration of all things is, has to come through the death and resurrection of Christ. Why? Why does that have to be the way of glory? See, the hope of resurrection and restoration comes through the death of our great Redeemer. What they don't understand is that Jesus must die on behalf of their sins. He must make things right. He must bring things back into order. He must accomplish the righteousness, the justice of God. He must bear the weight of their sin. See, it's at the cross that Jesus is going to purchase his people. He's going to suffer for their transgression. He's going to defeat the curse of sin and death through his sacrifice, and then he's going to be raised again. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to put to death, death. Okay? And how do you put death to death? You go through the grave. <laughs> you kill it. But he's far greater than Moses and Elijah. Because the word that he speaks brings you back to life. And so, brothers and sisters, maybe you're like the disciples right now, and you're just like, okay, I don't fully grasp God's purposes, his plans. But here's what we learn in this passage. Listen to him. Heed his voice like sheep and their shepherd. They listen to his voice, and they know him, and they follow him. 
Because this is what we find out here. Jesus is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And guess what? If you are in Christ, God is well pleased with you. You've now become a son and daughter of God. And this is all possible because of the cross and resurrection. And so this Christmas season, as we gather and we sing about the incarnation, guess what we're singing about? He is our great God. He is our great teacher. He is our great mediator. And he is our great redeemer. So as you sing these songs, let them be rich. Let them feed your soul. Let them fan into flame a desire, an expectation of the glory of God to be revealed when he appears again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that we are children. But Lord, honestly, when we look at ourselves, we don't look much different than everyone else. But Lord, we want to listen to your words, which tell us that you have adopted us as your children. And what we are has not yet appeared, but when you appear, we will appear like you. We will see you as you are, and we will behold your face in glory, and we will reflect your glory, and you will transform our lowly bodies to have a body incorruptible like yours. And we thank you for your word, which is a lamp shining in a dark place. And it leads us until the dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, until that day in which you return, in which the light of the world comes again and you, you, you shine your bright glory and all will behold you and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Lord, until that day we, we hold fast to your word, which, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we know that while it will lead us down the valley of the shadow of death, we shall fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they lead us, and they guide us, and they keep us. And you promise that resurrection and glory is on the other side. And so, Lord, let these truths encourage our hearts, and may they be the words of encouragement by which we encourage one another until we see that day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.